Good morning. Um, our scripture reading for this morning, it's found on Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 28. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 28. And he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value. If you obey the law, and if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward, outward and physical let's pray dear god thank you for this day thank you um for the privilege that it is to worship you and to be here together um this morning as your church and lord this morning i pray that um you will speak to us um that our hearts will be filled with whatever it is that we need um lord i pray that any distractions that are in our mind that we may put those aside and that we may continue to worship in jesus name i pray amen and you guys can be seated thank you guys for being here can you get somebody to hit the lights for me as much as i kind of love the the light mood of the light being down so Good morning. Thank you guys for being here. I know we got a lighter crowd today because most of you guys were off worshiping the Gators last night and having your idol fail you once again. Um, for those of you guys that have friends that aren't here this morning, will you take out your phones, send them a text right now? I'll, I'll give you guys a second. Just say, Jesus still loves you even though you chose staying up late last night and watching the Gators lose and then not coming to worship him this morning. Um, and while you're doing that, I need to speak to you guys briefly for about three to five minutes about something that's, that's coming up here in the community this week. Um, I wish I didn't have to have this conversation, but I need to. I know uh, some of you guys wish I wouldn't kind of address this type of thing, but we need to because it's important. So here's the deal. This Thursday, there's going to be a guy coming into Gainesville. His name's Richard Spencer. Most of you guys probably are at least semi-aware of him coming into town this week. Um, I have a request um, for you guys here this morning that you guys um, would do something for me this week. Um, and I consider it to be pretty important. So this Thursday, October 19th, I don't know what time he's speaking because I don't care. Um, Richard Spencer, he's a white nationalist, uh, who's been known to uh, make comments that he would like 
the United States to go back to being a white ethno uh, state. If you guys don't know what that means, look that up. Basically, he's a white supremacist. Um, I would ask, I know there's going to be protests and counter-protests and whatever else. I would ask that you guys please not engage them this week, okay? Um, And here's why. Number one, this guy feeds off of attention, mainly media attention, and if people aren't there, guess what he doesn't get? Attention. Number two, um, the gospel speaks multiple times about um, the need for us to properly understand the Imago Dei. And what I mean by that is understanding that all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, we need to reflect that and understand that properly. And here's the deal. If you're out protesting, screaming, and yelling, you're not going to be able to engage somebody in an actual conversation about the gospel and what God speaks um, in these situations, especially in regards to racial injustice in this country and racism and the type of ideology that this guy's spilling and spewing. Therefore, I don't find it to be an effective use of our time. Um, you could be much more effective sitting down with one person and actually engaging in a real conversation with them on what the Bible has to say about this over the course of, of that time than you could be standing outside yelling and screaming. Uh, thirdly, uh, and I, I know that most of you guys are college students in here. This is why we're engaging this in the first place. Um, someone died last time this guy showed up to town. And I would prefer you guys continue to live so that you can, you know, continue to share the gospel. And so um, I, I'm not going to address a ton. I'm not going to go into full detail. I've talked from this pulpit a number of different times on, on, on my thoughts just with, with race in this country. And uh, guys like this, we spent some time engaging this after the last time this guy showed up somewhere. So I would ask that you guys please uh, hear me on this and just not give the guy any attention that you not bother. I would, I'm not telling you not to notice what's going on. I'm, telling, I'm not telling you not to engage in the type of stuff that might uh, p- crop up this week here in Gainesville, but on this particular instance, I would ask that you please just not engage him. Um, there are a no, and I, I, I say this saying that there are many other pastors in this city who are giving this exact same talk right now this morning because we have been messaging with each other over the course of the last two weeks, asking to come out from a position of unity, at least in the church, uh, saying not to give this guy attention. I know there are multiple places here in town that will allow you to go and get tickets to the event and then turn them in and get something free in return. Uh, do that. Go for it. I'm not going to tell you what not to do. Go for it. The less tickets that can be bought by the public to see this guy spew his hate, the better. Uh, But as far as actually showing up and physically being present, uh, the less people that are there, the better it is. Because the less the media is going to be able to blow it out of proportion and the less this guy is going to have attention drawn to him. So um, I'm going to take a second to pray. I'm going to pray for the unity of our city this week. I ask that you guys join me if you feel led. And I'm also going to pray. Uh, there are quite a few people um, that will be providing security for this event, and I'm going to pray for them as well, because they have a thankless job this week, guys. Let's just be honest. Uh, both sides that are going to be there are going to be mad at the, at, at, the, at the police officers who are trying to keep the peace. So let's, let's keep that in mind, too, as we pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that as we kind of stare down um, something I'm not particularly pumped that's going to be going down in our city this week, uh, that I need not fear, uh, I, need, I need not be hopeless, uh, because as we sang earlier, you are Lord of all. Uh, Father, I ask that uh, this week, 
that as your followers, as your disciples, as your daughters and your sons, that we would properly reflect your position on the Imago Dei. That we would love people well, that we would be fervent in sharing the gospel, and that we would be centered around a sincere love for you and giving you the glory and the honor and the attention you deserve. That we would love our brothers and sisters of all colors, of all cultures well, while gently and lovingly calling them to repentance and faith in you. Lord, I pray for all those that will be involved in this event this week. Lord, if I may be so bold, I pray that Richard Spencer would come down with a terrible case of the flu and be unable to speak on Thursday. But if not, Lord, that you would keep those that are going to be at this event safe. And Lord, that your message of hope, love, repentance, and reconciliation would win the day. And that that would go out and that Gainesville uh, would set an example to the rest of the country on how we're going to continue to engage in this discussion. Lord, I pray for the safety of everyone involved this week. And I pray that we would be known by a sincere and genuine love for you. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 2. Uh, we'll be finishing up there this morning. Uh, thank you guys for being here um, this morning. We're going to be uh, discussing um, some, some pretty interesting things this morning. Uh, if you guys heard earlier, circumcision is going to be on the agenda this morning. Hope you're excited for that. Uh, I know I was as I was studying and preparing this week. Uh, but um, basically, if I could give you guys a quick recap of where we've been up until this point, because I know that every Sunday we have new faces, and they don't know what we've been talking about. And as we, because we study books of the Bible, and, and things just kind of tend to build one week to the next, um, it's, it's good to understand where we've been and what we've been kind of seeing up until this point as we've been studying the book of Romans. And so um, to give you guys a quick recap, really what Paul has been addressing for the last probably three or four weeks as we've been studying the book is this idea is if you are a Christian, you can't just rush to the good news of the gospel. And that the good news of what Jesus Christ has done and accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection is certainly important, but you can't rush there to start with that there's bad news as well. And the bad news is understanding that you and I, because of our sin, are in open rebellion towards the God of the universe and therefore stand condemned guilty before him, deserving of his wrath. Now, um, Paul kind of anticipated a few issues in making that declaration. And so he uh, tries to kind of address what he considers to be two groups of people. The first one being the non-religious and the second group being the religious. Uh, mainly the Jews and culturally in his day. And so with the non-religious, right, he addresses them by saying, look, it doesn't matter if you grew up culturally Jewish or not, you're still guilty of rebellion towards God because God has given us all we need to know about him both in creation and then the fact that you and I have a conscience and still rebel against that conscience, right? It's what we might call the moral law, right? We talked about that at length last week. And then with the religious, he said, it doesn't matter with, if you grow up knowing the law or not. It doesn't matter how religious you are. When you judge others for doing certain things and then transgress and do the very things you judge others for, you, you prove your own guilt. And that's kind of what he's been laying out, saying like, listen, every single one of us in this room is guilty and sinful and therefore deserving of God's wrath. 
And, and what he's been laying out to us is that ultimately in the end, God will judge. And that God is just and will judge the actions of men. But that this is not necessarily a bad thing. Like ultimately what you and I kind of need to understand is we love the concept and idea of justice unless it deals with us. Right? Typically, you're like, we want justice in most situations unless we are the ones that in some way, shape, or form have transgressed and are therefore guilty. And what we've seen is that hey, God is a good and impartial judge. The problem is not so much that God is a good and impartial judge, but that you and I are guilty. And what Paul has been trying to say is, look, here's the reality. We have to be honest with ourselves when we're assessing how we look and stand before a holy and just God. And the honest position is that you and I are sinful and we are desperately in need of God's mercy and grace. And so that's really what we've been looking at. And Paul's going to continue to drive that point home this morning, as you heard Ketty read earlier to us in the text um, and this morning, he's going to move solely from kind of dealing with the, the more non-religious audience with a little bit of the religious sprinkled in to solely the more religious side, okay? And um, better put, right, the religious Jews of his day. Now, he's going to break them down into two categories, okay? The first category is going to be what I would consider to be the, the moral upstanding citizens, Right, the Jews who understand the moral law and are excited about following that and being good people. Okay? The second group is going to be the fervently religious. Okay? So you've got two groups that Paul's dealing with this morning, both religious, but maybe religious in different ways. The first group, the, the, the morally good, right? the, the, the good people, the, and, and the ones that kind of pursue that. The second one is the group of the, the fervently and actively religious. And you're going to notice this morning that throughout our time in the text, I'm going to interchange often this idea of the religious Jew with the idea of the American Christian. I said a few weeks ago that the similarities between the first century religious Jews and the Bible Belt are astonishing. That most of us, if you grew up in the South in here, Right, are going to be able to relate strongly with the things that Paul is talking about. Whether you find yourself in them or not, you're going to at least have seen it in the culture around you, seen it in your parents, seen it in your grandparents, seen it in your neighbors, seen it in your teachers, seen it in your friends. And I want it to challenge us this morning to look at what Paul is saying and allow it to penetrate us so we might take seriously the reality of the condition of our hearts. Because here, here's why Paul is having to deal with the religious on this level in the first place. They're so worried about external behavior and the way they look and the way they're perceived that they don't allow the Word of God to rightly deal with them on a heart level. And the greatest kind of thing I've seen since I've moved from further up north to the south is that there is a much stronger culture of the church in the south but just as strong a culture of unbelief in the South. That there are many who grow up in the church are knowing things about God and assume that that cultural heritage is all they need, and yet they don't know Jesus. They know of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. 
I kind of explain this to people in different ways, right? That there was a, a period of time where I knew my wife and knew who she was, right? From a distance, I knew she existed the way many people know that Jesus existed. But it wasn't until I met her and had a relationship with her and started dating her that I actually knew my wife. That I actually knew who she was. I knew about her personality. I knew the way she acted around other people. Right? And so many of us in the South struggle with that same thing. We know of Jesus, but do we actually know him? And so I'm going to try hard this morning. And I'd like you guys to pray and think openly about any unchecked and unrepentant sin because I'm going to be touching on some areas that may be difficult to hear and deal with honestly and openly. But we need to. Okay? So let's look at the text starting in verse 17 this morning. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so the first group we see Paul kind of addressing here, the, the Jews that are going to be reading this letter from Rome, right, are, are the morally good, right, the good people, right, the guys that are trying to do the right thing. And I want to start with this, right, the, the, the idea of us even describing people as being good is kind of um, lunacy, Okay, uh, throw up Luke chapter 18 for me. I, w- I want us to have this idea of, like, typically, like, we're, we're quick to name some, oh, like, he's such a good guy, or she's such a good girl, like, I love her, or, she's a great roommate, or he's a, he's a great co-worker, all right? We're, we're quick to throw this idea of good out, right? But if you look at Luke 18, right, Jesus is quick to, to properly kind of assess us using this term, right? Look at this. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? So this person comes up to Jesus and is like, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to spend eternity with you? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Here's what I take away from those two verses, that we are way too quick to label someone good. Right, that, the, that the standard of good is perfection, and the only one to meet that standard is God alone. So Jesus is kind of revealing here and saying, look, if you're going to call me good, you're going to be recognizing my deity here, because there is no one that meets that description but God alone. And so if you're going to call me that, you need to make sure you fully understand what you're saying and that we also need to understand in 2017 sitting here, we can't really use that term to describe people. Maybe we could say, oh yeah, he's good in comparison to Hitler. Maybe he's good in comparison to uh, my fa- one of my favorite stories of all time when my wife was in China 
uh, spending a summer there working with a certain organization that I'm not allowed to name because they're not supposed to be there, but they're there and everyone knows they're there. Um, she, she was working there doing missions work that summer and she was sharing the gospel with this one uh, Ch- Chinese girl and she told her, name the person that you think is the, you know, just like the worst person in the world and they named Mike Tyson. <laughs> True story, not making that up. Right? Like, whoever you kind of consider to be the worst person in the world, right? If we're comparing ourselves to that person, it's like, yeah, I'm pretty good. But that's not the standard. Guys, I hate to break it to you. Mike Tyson's not your standard. Right? You know, you might look pretty good against Mike Tyson. Right? Maybe not. I don't know. But the reality is, is the standard is the, is the creator of the universe. Right? And the description of him is holy and perfect and good. And guess what? You and I don't meet that standard. And so to start with this idea of, hey, there's like some morally good people. I'm a pretty good person. Right? I talked about this a couple weeks ago that the primary religion of the South is not Christianity. It's therapeutic moralistic deism. Right? Where most people in the South have this picture of God where he's not super involved in life. He's only interested in us being good p- people. And if you're pretty good at the end of your life, you'll get to spend eternity with him. That's what most of us in the South grow up believing. It's what most of our friends and family believe about God. But that is not the God of the Bible. Because the reality is... If God judges you, as we've seen over the course of the last two weeks studying the book of Romans, based upon your performance on whether you're a good person or not, guess what? You're not. I'm not. That Paul is abundantly clear, the only person who's good is God, and you don't meet that standard whether you're non-religious and a Gentile that grew up in Rome or whether you're Jewish and you grew up with the law. And so I want to start with that, okay? The, 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 the point that you and I are starting from today is I'm not as good as I think I am. And like, I know I say that a lot, but I want you guys to take that serious this morning because here's the reality. Myself included, I can say that intellectually, but I don't always believe it. I see my neighbor running around on his wife, or I see the lady walking around at the mall who had her face beaten in, and I can just think of the guy who did that, and I'm, I was like, I'm a better person than that. I deserve that. Right? That we're quick to understand the, the intellectual implications of I'm not a good person, but do you actually believe that on a heart level? Because that's what Paul is challenging us on. And so when we get to verse 17, look at how he starts it. He says, If you call yourself a Jew, now, that word if is pretty incendiary, right? Because here's kind of what Paul's saying. He's like, you say you're Jewish, prove it. You say you love God, prove it. You say you're proud to know God and love it. Why don't don't you prove it? Let's see if you really understand what it means to be Jewish and and, and one of God's children, okay? We can probably relate with this because guess what? Americans are a pretty proud cultural heritage, just like the Jews were, right? And most of us in this room grew up in the United States. Let let me give you a simple example of how I know that the primary religion of most people in the U.S. is is, is rooted in American nationalism. How many people have been on Facebook in the last month and seen some stupid post about whether some football player is kneeling at a football game or not? Right, most of us in this room, and most of us probably have an opinion on it, whether it actually matters or not. 
right? Okay, that protest started out as a protest against racial injustice. It's now become whether you're really an American or not, right? See, when we start attacking people's idols, right, the truth starts coming out about what you really care about, right? Like, my mom loves football. She's completely gone off the deep end about how upset she is about whether there's some guys kneeling before a football game or not. And I'm like, Mom, why, why does it bother you so much? What's well, un-American. Why do you care so much? Like, wh- why is this such a big deal? Right? And when, no matter what side of the equation you stand on, whether you're pro-kneeling or anti-kneeling or you don't care one way or the other, the reality is, is the entire situation has revealed to us, and I think God is lovingly doing this, even amongst the church, is do we care more about being an American than we care about being a follower of Jesus Christ? That do we care more about what someone is doing while a song is played than we care about repentance and faith in our Lord and Savior? The argument has become, what does it mean to be an American? And we must fight and die for that at all costs. Americans in particular typically have great pride for our country and our national heritage and all that we think is included in that. And therefore, if we see anybody infringing upon that, we have a visceral internal reaction to something like that. And guess what? First century Israel was the same way. They had a great amount of cultural and national pride that also carried over into the religious sphere because they were, and they were God's chosen people. They were a nation created out of what God had done through Abraham. And so the reality was, is as a people, right, they're like, we have all the answers. We're the best culture in the world. We're the best nation in the world. Everyone should look to us. And one day God will place us back where we belong as the most important world superpower there is. Sound familiar? How many of you guys grew up hearing that America was the greatest country in the world? Yeah, most of you guys in this room. How many of you guys think other countries probably say the same thing to their kids? There you go. If you grew up Jewish, you were told how great you were to be Jewish. If you grew up American, you were told how great it was that you grew up American. And guys, hear me on this. This is not meant to be a time to bash America. I am very, very thankful to live here in this country. But if you are asking me to choose between Jesus Christ or my identity as an American, I am going to choose Jesus every single time. If that rubs some of you guys the wrong way, sorry, but I'm not sorry. If you are deeply offended by what I'm saying this morning, sorry, I'm not sorry. Because the the issue that Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 2 is so serious that when Jesus showed up on the scene and Jesus wasn't interested in restoring Israel to its political glory, they murdered him. That their love for their nation and their national pride overrode looking for what the scriptures told them. And we struggle with many of the same things here. And Paul is challenging the Jews on their propensity to think that they are right with God simply because they are morally superior or religiously superior to other cultures. He's like, so what? 
So, if you gr- so, so what if you grew up with the cultural heritage of knowing who the true God was? Do you really know him or do you know of him? Or look at some of the things he says, right? In verse 17, he's like, you, you claim to have this love and reliance on the law. You claim to love your Bible. Right? You claim to, to know the scriptures well. You boast in God. Right? Like, good for you. You know who God is. In verse 18, they, he kind of touches on their ethics. Oh, you're, you're good people. You tend, you tend to follow God well, right? You want to do the right thing. Good for you, right? You claim to be all these things. And he moves on later in verse 18, right, that they, that they, uh, that they know their, their, their Bibles well, that they are instructed from the law, so you're biblical. Sound familiar, guys? People that grew up in the church in the South can say all of these things. I grew up in the church, like, I, I know the word of God, like, isn't God great, right? We can say all these different things, and I love when we get to verse 19, he's like, you know, you, you think you're so great that you're even teaching those that don't know about God. And how many of us grew up going to church and were told that we needed to be sharing our faith with our friends and be teaching them about God and living a certain way? Guys, the similarities are scary to me. Paul's saying, you think you're so great because of all these things. You think God needs you? You think the world is going to fall apart at the seams if you disappear? American Christians, this is us. That there is an assumption that we are so integral to the story and the redemptive history of what God is doing that we place ourselves at a position of superiority to those around us. Everybody stand up for me for just a second. This is weird. I know we're going to do this, but if you've got a Bible, stand up. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles out in the foyer, okay? And I mean at home in general. If you own a Bible, stand up. If you don't own a Bible, we have free ESV Bibles out at the table in the foyer, so you're going to own one before you leave today. All right, now, let me, I'm going to give you guys a, a prime example, right, of how I know that American Christians, right, we're way more prideful than we think you are. If you own a copy of the Bible and it happens to be the ESV translation, sit down. Most of the room, the elect standard version is the, cho- the, the version of choice in here. Okay. If you own a King James Bible, sit down. If you own a new King James Bible, sit down. I got some more. New American Standard Bible, sit down. NIV, sit down. The message, sit down. The living Bible, sit down. Okay, I've got two people. What do you guys have? NLT, New Living Translation. Oh, there we go. You guys can sit down too. Okay, now, listen up. I named nine versions of Scripture there for one language, right? That Americans are so prideful right, about knowing everything, that we can't even agree on which translation is the best. So we have, since 1611, 300 translations of the Greek and Hebrew into English. Think about that. That there are people in the world that speak other languages that do not have the Bible translated in their language, and yet we waste time in America coming up with new ones because we didn't like the other one. Think of the lunacy of that. What a waste of resources and money that is. But we're so prideful and we're so, we so assume that we know everything 
that we just continue to kind of drive this home, right? The, the, Christians in America are crazy, right? We write books. We have our own subculture. We have the, the, the regular Barnes and Nobles not good enough, so we have to create our own Christian bookstores so that we might be saved from the, the demon-worshiping books that might also be on the same shelf as the purpose-driven life. We have our own movie production companies that star Kirk Cameron in every movie that there is. Like, we're, like we're, we're nuts. And guys, let me let you in on a secret about most of this stuff. It's tied to money, and it's tied to pride. Because people can make money off of us, and they can assume, hey, we know how to do it better, so we're going to do it this way. And guys, here's the reality. I, I participate in most of it. This is not just an indictment of you guys as I'm talking to you. I, I'm just as guilty of it. It's embarrassing how many different Bible translations I have sitting in my house. Americans do this in the way that they try to lead world missions. We go into a place with a culture we don't know and understand, and then we start teaching others how to do things, and we always want to tell them what they got wrong and never want to infer what they get right. Even, even I fall into this trap. Every time I visit Columbia, I'm super critical of the church there. And I'm there usually about 10 days a year. So I probably know a lot, right? Right, we're super critical, we're super analytical, and why did we do that? Because of the, the cultural pride and heritage that we grew up with, we just assume we know everything, we've got it right. And then I get struck by what Paul says in verses 21 and 24. It's like, you teach others not to steal? You ever stolen? You teach others not to commit adultery? What about you? Have you ever committed adultery? Teach you not to worship idols? Hey, morally good person, do you rob temples? I had this one myself. You think you know the proper way to do ministry all the time? Do you even follow that method all the time yourself? He says this in verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by what? Breaking the law. Guys, that verse right there in verse 24 should give us great fear. Because in the South, what I see is a group of people clinging to their cultural idols, and yet this is what's going on with them. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. And an effort to claim that we have all the answers and to be good and right. Not only are we guilty of sinning and ignoring the very law we claim to love, but look at what Paul says. The name of God is blasphemed because of us. Think about that a second, guys. That if in some way we walk in pride towards what we're doing and claiming to have all the answers, we're actually blaspheming the name of God that we're claiming to love. 
Listen to what Francis Schaeffer says in his commentary on Romans. How terrible. Here are the Jews who were supposed to show the image of the living God before a lost world, and yet they saw their mission mainly as a basis for pride. We see the same problem amongst Christians today. What would you guess is the most difficult thing a missionary faces when starting a new work? I don't know of a single missionary who would disagree that the greatest problem they face is the people who have been there before them and have been equated in the people's minds with the name Christian. Some of you guys know this or not, when I first arrived in Gainesville, it was a little over five years ago, to plant this church with about 18 other people. And when I started meeting people who weren't Christians, do you know what the first thing they asked me was? Hey, are you with that guy who's burning Korans in northern Gainesville? Nope, don't know the guy and have nothing to do with him. But there's your proof of what's going on. That there was an immediate assumption that we were connected to that guy because we were Christians. And Paul's point to the Jews is this. You think you're morally superior. You think you're helping. You think you have all the answers. You think God's blessing you and that you know everything because you're so morally upright. You are contributing, you are the contributing force in blaspheming the name of God to the Gentiles. How many of you guys know somebody within the church that thinks atheists are the biggest problem facing the church? not realizing that they themselves are probably the biggest problem facing the advance of the gospel. Right? I'm reading Romans 2. I don't see Paul saying Richard Dawkins is the primary problem to the spread of American Christianity. You know what I do see him saying? You and I are the primary problem. That you and I are the ones that blaspheme God with our actions and the way that we live. Is it possible that you are doing more to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ than you think? Is it possible that you have allowed American nationalism with some Christianity sprinkled in completely take over your worldview? Now he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop, stop with the morally good. Look at what he, he starts doing when you get to verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and uncircumcision breaks the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Some of you guys are like, ah, I don't really find myself trying to be that morally good person and tell everybody what's wrong with themselves and trying to do the right thing all the time. But I am religious. I actively participate in my faith. And Paul says, you're a problem too. And the first thing he does is point to the religious act that all male Jews would have associated with, which is circumcision. Turn over to Genesis chapter 17 with me. I'm going to read 
this passage to you, and then I'm going to try to explain to you guys why this is such a big deal in the first place, because most, most of us probably only know what circumcision is and why, and we didn't have a poor understanding of why it was important to Jews. Right, but look, at, look at chapter 17, starting in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, what is circumcision? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the medical act of it. I don't need to get into that. Most of you guys probably understand what that is. If not, please see Blaine or Jamie afterwards. They're going to med school. Now listen, circumcision, why it's important biblically is because it is a sign of the covenant God had made with Abraham. Now, here is what these signs were supposed to represent, right? Anytime God participated in a covenant with somebody, a sign was given, and here's what that sign, sign meant. It meant this, if you break this covenant, let this happen to you. So when God originally makes his covenant with Abraham, right, if you know anything about that, and I believe it's Genesis chapter 15, Abraham's in a deep sleep, and what God does is he takes an animal and he cuts it in half, and then he walks through it. And the, the imagery behind that is God is saying to Abraham, if I break this covenant, let what happened to this animal happen to me. That's the point that God is making. Now, when, you, when we say that the males were supposed to be circumcised, here's what that repre represented. This is a sign that if the covenant between Israel, right, the, the, the male Israelites is broken in a very real, intimate, and personal way, because guess what? Circumcision is very real, very intimate, and very personal. That in a very real, intimate, and personal way, you are cut off from God. Think about that for a second. That's what it represents. It's a sign that if you are in a covenant with God and you transgress that covenant in a very real, intimate, and personal way, you are cut off from him. It had a purpose. And so Paul's point in sharing this is like, I don't care how much you follow the religious rites and rules. I don't care if you were circumcised on the eighth day, because if you have been circumcised and you have the law, but you break it, it's it becomes uncircumcision. You're not, you're not following the law. And if those who are uncircumcised don't have the law but keep it, it's circumcision to them. It's not the act of being circumcised which saved you. Being a Jew is not just outward but inward. What does this mean? you grew up going to church, were baptized at a young age, served in your ch church, were super involved, 
Right? If you were like me, you were the cute little kid in the white robe carrying the cross or the light end of the room to do the thing that they did at the front of the, the, front of the altar. Some of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about because you went to non-denominational churches, but us more traditional people did some cool things with candles. And Paul is saying, a Christian is not just one outwardly, but inwardly. And it doesn't matter if you have all the trappings of religion, but in your heart you're dead. And so here's what I, here's what I want to pose. I want to pose this with two questions as we finish up our time this morning. How do we diagnose this? Because I imagine that this morning what we've been talking about is going to go a lot further at tugging at heartstrings than maybe what we've been talking about previously because this is speaking more to the culture that I know surrounds us here in the South. And that many of you guys grew up in. So I'm going to ask two questions and I want you to take them seriously and I want you to kind of use them to diagnose yourself this morning as we take communion later and have some time to reflect and pray. Number one. How do you view your Bible? Are you fascinated with learning facts and knowing every story of the Bible? Are you super comfortable with systematic theology and learning obscure theological nuggets like superlapsarianism? And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. There's nothing wrong with learning theology. But do you care to learn these things, but then this, not apply them? Can you biblically define repentance for me and yet refuse to repent? Are you like the Jews, proud of knowing the law, but dishonor God by breaking it? It's probably a good indication that you're stuck in moralism. And that the church over the years has fanned that idol in your own life. I'm fascinated by the number of people that can tell me the story of Jesus Christ, but they can't tell me the actual reason he went to the cross. I'm fascinated at the number of people that know the Ten Commandments, but don't know why the Ten Commandments were given. I'm fascinated by the number of people that can explain Calvinism to me but can't explain the cross to me. Do you know your Bible on an intellectual level but not a heart level? Some of you guys are like, no, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it. I'm I'm walking out repentance, I get it. Let me propose a second question to you. First question is, how do, you, how do you view your Bible? The second question is, how do you feel about yourself? And, and I'm not ask, this is not a psych exam. Okay, I'm not interested in boosting your self-esteem or making sure that we understand popular psychology. Here's what I mean by that question. Am I too worried about what I have done or accomplished? And primarily, I would 
ask that question from a spiritual standpoint. Have I been baptized? Have I been to seminary? Do I lead a small group? Do I teach others? Do I disciple people? Have I memorized a lot of scripture? Uh, am I not struggling with the bad sins like some of my peers are? Do I pray the most, etc.? right? We t- as Christians tend to have this list of things that we consider to be super spiritual and super important, and we focus on those things and those things alone. Just like the Jews had certain things that they cared about, they didn't care about others. Jesus talks about that, right? I love how in the, in the scripture, right, he's dealing with the Pharisees, and he says that they are really good at doing certain things, and yet they forget about the weightier things of the law. That they're, they're really good at, at knowing certain things they're supposed to do, but they don't care about the heart. You demonstrate the same circumcision as the Jews if you're more worried about your religious activities externally, but not internally. And Paul's point to his audience is this. Both groups stand guilty and condemned before a holy God. If you find yourself meeting some of these things, you're like, yeah, I, I, that's how, that is how I treat my Bible. That is, that is how I treat participation in the community of Christ. Here's, here's my encouragement to you. But it's easy to read this and be like, be super depressed. It's like, oh my gosh, like, that is what I grew up in. Like, that is what I know. That is what I've been taught. That, that, that is like, you're describing my life. Here's the thing, guys, as I was preparing the sermon, I knew that most of you guys would be able to relate with this because most of you grew up in this. Here's my encouragement to you. Twofold. One, it's never too late to repent and stop trusting in yourself. That, that is the Jews' primary problem here. Is that their faith and their trust was in their own performance and what they knew and who they were as a culture and not in the God who had called out Abraham to begin with. So number one, you can recognize this. Hey, like in my quest to appear spiritual and holy and love God, I actually love myself and not God. God, forgive me for that. And then number two, turn over to Colossians chapter two with me. That's where we're going to finish today. Here is the hope that is laid up for us. Paul says this starting in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. By the way, that can include human traditions in the church. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, right, notice that, in him, Jesus Christ, in him alone, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. It's all about Jesus. 
In him also, look at this, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Guys, be honest with yourself. You're not as good as you think you are, and you're probably not as spiritual as you think you are. And even if you are, the fullness of God dwells in Christ alone, not in you alone. Not in your culture alone, not in your church experience alone. It dwells in Him and Him alone. Know who you are in Christ, not in your performance and knowledge. Know that in him you are circumcised, just like eight-day-old Jewish boys. You were circumcised without hands. What Paul's saying there is if you are in Christ, right, God has cut away your sinful nature supernaturally and judicially. And that you have been instead made alive with him. That you, who were dead in your religion, in your moralism, in your disobedience to God, have been declared forgiven because Jesus took the guilty sentence against you and I and nailed it to the cross when he went there. This is why it's all about him, guys. It's not about your performance. It's not about you. It's not about your culture. It's not about your heritage. The certificate of debt has been nailed to the Christ. And so you have two choices, guys. You can do it on your own or you can do it with him. And my plea to you this morning would be to please, by repentance, put to death the sin of moralism and fervent religion and instead lay it at the foot of the cross and trust in him and him alone. Because it is only him who is actually worthy of our hope and trust. 200 years from now, guys, if Jesus hasn't come back at that point, I don't know if America is gonna be standing or not but I know what is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It withstood the fall of Rome. It withstood the Crusades. It withstood multiple world wars. It's withstood persecution of governments. It's withstood religious legalism of Jews and of Christians. The gospel will remain long after those who are in power today have had their time. Place your hope and trust in the everlasting God.
and his only son who gave his life for you so that you might know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. Lord, you know that for me personally, the text this week has cut me deeply because I struggle with my love for American nationalism. That it was instilled in me from a young age and it still reigns true in my heart. Lord, help me personally and anyone here this morning that struggles with the things we talked about to buy repentance, confess it as sin, and ask for your mercy and your forgiveness. God, thank you that you promised to us through the blood and flesh of your Son that your mercies are new each and every day. And Lord, as as I take communion, as we take communion collectively as a church here this morning, I pray that we would confess sin and that we would come up and take the bread and the juice this morning thankful that your son laid down his life so that we might be forgiven and loved. I thank you that we have one reason to be here this morning, and that's to worship you and your son. May we continue to make much of him in this time and throughout this week, and I ask this all in Jesus' name.